Behind the Bite podcast is part of a network of podcasts that are good for the world. Check out podcasts like the Full of Shit podcast, After the First Marriage podcast, and Eating Recovery Academy over at practiceofthepractice.com backslash network. Welcome to Behind the Bite podcast. This podcast is about the real life struggles women face with food, body image, and weight. We're here to help heal, inspire, and create better, healthier lives. Welcome. Well, hello, everyone. You know, it's interesting. I'm a psychologist, and yes, I understand I'm an eating disorder specialist, but somehow I find that I get so many questions about exercise, whether it be when I'm in my office or not in my office, Um, and it can be one of the most difficult topics to tackle. And, you know, I think it's because we're all encouraged to exercise to be quote-unquote healthy, and it's hard to know how much, how often, or even what form of exercise to do. And there can be a line that gets crossed when someone has an eating disorder because it becomes part of the illness, which is anything but healthy. And, you know, I can share personally, I crossed that line myself when I had my eating disorder. So I know that line that can get crossed and I know it can be very confusing. So um, I am sure excited for our guest today to come in, in and help us make some sense out of all of this. Amy Gardner is a certified eating disorder, registered dietitian, and yoga teacher from Boston. Amy combines over 20 years of clinical and personal recovery experience with psychology, mindfulness, sensory motor, and yoga training to help her clients move into full recovery. She's owner of Metro West Nutrition, a multidisciplinary group practice where she supervises other eating disorder clinicians and author of the book, I Move, helping your clients heal from compulsive exercise. Through the I Move program, based on her book, Amy leads movement groups and trains other clinicians how to use the I Move method in their own work. All right, Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So this is a topic um, you know, that that I think a lot of eating disorder clinicians maybe don't talk enough about, and you know for. Um, probably good reason because I think it's a question of like who actually takes it on. And so I'm actually curious, uh, would you mind sharing us with a little bit about how you actually got uh, interested in, um, I guess, looking more into this and how you got into the space of, um, you know, specializing more in, I guess, I don't know if it's specializing in more, but like um, being at the place you're at in your career now where this is something where, uh, you know, I'm having you on the podcast to, to talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's a combination of my own personal recovery experience and, you know, the work I've done with people over, you know, course of a little over 20 years now in their own eating disorder recovery, just seeing how significant uh, the role of compulsive exercise can be and and watching that have a pretty substantial impact on people's recovery trajectory. And it was one of those things that I felt like it was like the precursor to people relapsing when they'd come out of treatment programs. It was like, you know, that the exercise wouldn't have been addressed. So then they start exercising and it, it's kind of like a snowball effect into back into behavioral patterns. Um, 
And I know for myself, like using movement or finding a different relationship with movement was really valuable and helpful for me in my recovery process. So the reason why I wanted to create this program was really to help others be able to transform their relationship with movement so that it's something that's more helpful and beneficial in the recovery process. And so that it's not labeled as this all or nothing, like, oh, exercise is a behavior or not, you know, and if you're not abstaining, then you're, you're aligned with recovery. When in fact, I think going into the um, movement can help us go into our bodies, which is something that's a really important part of the the recovery process. Yeah. I, I think there's, you know, what I find is because there's in our diet culture, anyways, diet and exercise. It's always like, eat less, exercise more. There's always this tied relationship. And so it's one in the same. And so I think it's how to overcome that hurdle and like tease out like food and what you eat is not necessarily tied to how much movement or how much exercise you're doing. And I don't know how we as a society stop tying the two together, but I think, I don't know if you think that that's part of the problem um, and why it's so difficult to, you know, in recovery or in treatment to not have movement or exercise be kind of this thing people don't want to touch or don't know even how to incorporate into recovery or treatment. Hmm. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, it is very much tied into uh, the dominant diet culture messaging, right? And we get a lot of messages that more is better, and that you know that, that you know, I think about like no pain, no gain, and some of these me- this mentality that people have around exercise and 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 what constitutes exercise and what what doesn't count, or you know what um, uh, what qualifies and quantifies as exercise, and 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 um, what what the purpose of exercise is. I think it's always it seems to be oriented around like. Um, like, like you said, like kind of tying it to some kind of energy expenditure or the amount of food one eats. And it's, it's, it's always connected to like changing the shape of the body or, or size, et cetera. Whereas there's, there's a, you know, we're really, um, intended to move as, as human beings. And there's a, a value to movement much like that extends beyond that. And, um, I think movement can get very disconnected when we've got all these external ways of measuring it, whether it's like a Fitbit or an iWatch or, um, you know, you're seeing your friend's statistics on some kind of an app or, you know, and it becomes much more of an externally driven thing versus something that's a way, something that's a source of connection to our own body and, and, and therefore is like driven by our own natural impulses to move. Right. So for you, it sounds like you have this your own history um, of having maybe a dysfunctional relationship with exercise. And Mm -hmm. did you know at the time that it was dysfunctional or was that something that you kind of learned or realized along the way in your recovery? No, in fact, it wasn't. It's interesting to think, look back. It was never addressed. I never addressed it. I never, it was a problem. I was an athlete. It always was very, to me, like normal to be exercising a lot. And I could always justify it, you know, you know, with that athletic identity. And I think that there was some, some, there was definitely crossover there, like between this eating disorder identity and, and athletic identity that I wasn't always clear about at the time. And we were focused so much on, um, I think what I was identifying as the behaviors that I wanted to address. Um, and the exercise was something that was not, I didn't want, I, I maybe I didn't want to bring into the room with my, 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 my team. And it, at the time, and this, we're t- now talking like 
my gosh, like crazy, um, 30, 30 years ago or so, like it's, it's, it, things were much different. And, and I think maybe, um, exercise was thought of as still, I mean, it, it always still is thought of as something very beneficial to health, right. And helpful. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily blame my, my treatment team for not addressing it, but it wasn't something on the radar, right. It wasn't something that was, was actively being discussed or there was a lot of concern about, um, I think as long as my labs were normal, et cetera, there was, there was no reason for concern and I never had any kind of limitations placed on my exercise, but likewise, it wasn't really discussed either. And, and looking back, I realized that it, it was, it was a big part of the picture. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I have a history myself and I never realized that exercise was my way of purging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, at all. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, this is me being super healthy and like taking care of my body yeah. and doing yeah. all the things yeah. I read in the magazines, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. There was a number of other th- eating disorder behaviors that you might've classified as like, um, not healthy or what I would call like e- egotistonic things that don't be- feel good or may have some, um, some shame associated with them. But this, that one felt like really good and positive and it was helping, you know, I always felt like I was, um, aligning more with that athletic identity that felt like a good, a good identity. Whereas the eating disorder identity, you know, as I was engaged in recovery, at least it felt bad, right. Like didn't like as part I wanted to like move away from. So it, I think the, the exercise also, um, in my mind was a way that I would help, help me feel stronger. I mean, it had a lot of, and, and that's not a bad thing. I think that that's one thing we, I talk about a lot in my groups with, with clients and individually in session is that there's a lot of great ways that movement and exercise and really helps us and, and provides something and is life enhancing. And then we just have to kind of be able to find the, the, the area, the way, a way to have, relate to it, where it is providing us with benefit versus, um, taking away from our lives. Right. That's well said. Cause, um, I don't know how you felt, but I felt like all, some of the eating disorder behaviors, I was so ashamed of and wanted to hide. This was one where I didn't realize first of all, it was an eating disorder, but I got a lot of praise and a lot of like, Oh my gosh, you're so healthy. It was my identity. And I felt like, Oh, I'm like, yeah such a good athlete and I'm getting like, you know, trophies and all this great stuff. This is the one thing where I could do yeah. it and shine. And it was fantastic. Like, I'm not going to get rid of this. <laughs> right. No, that's a good point. There's a lot of positive reinforcement for this type of behavior, right. For, for exercising a lot. I actually think it's funny that you say that. I actually remember in college, um, you know, I was in, in a sorority and I remember one of, I was a nutrition major and I, there was a, a senior graduating. I think I was just must have been a, a sophomore, and she was like, "You know, I always look at you and think of you as like the ideal nutrition student because you've always got your water bottle and you're always running." And I'm thinking, if you only knew, <laughs> you know. Um, but it, but yeah, like that. That's the picture that's painted, right, for us. Like, of what is ideal health or what is um, 
you know, what, what are, what, what is, what is virtuous when it comes to, you know, behaviors. And meanwhile, I mean, that just made me feel like crap because I knew underneath there was like all this other stuff going on and all these thoughts and feelings I was having about my body and, um, and working through in therapy. And, and so it was, it's just interesting that, that there can be such a disconnect between what people are seeing on the outside and what's probably being shared quite honestly on social media and what's actually happening underneath. And, it's been quite interesting to have to see people outwardly on, um, you know, just thinking of a, a friend of mine who was well, not, not a close friend, but acquaintance who was out on social media and she was kind of going through this weight loss journey and she was sharing a lot about her process um, very um, publicly. And then at one point, and I was just like, kind of, I saw it coming, right? I saw like, oh no, this, this, this is not going to be good. And she reached out to me and ex- ex- expressed, she said, I'm so thankful that you've been posting all these things you're posting because I'm really struggling. And I feel like, um, it, you know, I went through this, this process and it's been really hard because I'm now realizing that it, it, you know, I had developed an eating disorder as a result of all these behaviors I was engaging in. And, um, so it was really interesting to see that because outwardly, like this was never public, right? That this was all kind of, she, you know, messaged me on the side and, but to see what she was putting out there and people seeing, oh, she looks happier. She looks, she's healthier. Right. And yet, meanwhile, underneath that, there was this other experience that she was having and one that she didn't want to put out publicly. So I think that's always important for people to know is there's another side to the story and there's other, there's a, you know, there's potentially something else going on underneath. Um, People don't necessarily publicly share what might feel more shameful or the, the uh, more, the darker, shadow side of all of this. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that side. Cause I think people maybe listening don't know that they're like, wow, I just see people that, you know, on social media look like they're so happy. And I wish I had that motivation. I wish I could do mm-hmm. that. Like what's the darker side? <laughs> like, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it looks like, um, really being consumed by, uh, thoughts about food, thoughts about exercise, when you're going to exercise, feelings like unbelievably guilty and anxious when you don't get exercise in, um, feeling like, you know, like there's a lot, lack, lack of interest or loss of interest in things you might normally have or prior to this been interested in, um, feeling out of control. So oftentimes when, um, you know, when there's been an energy deficit for long enough, long enough, or I say oftentimes, pretty much always when there's been an energy deficit for long enough, there's going to be a psychological drive to eat more. And, and so a lot of times what, what results is binging or loss of control around food, which can be very upsetting to someone who has been working so hard and focusing so much on, you know, these, you know, um, diet aligned behaviors and, and trying to kind of get to a certain place with their, with their body. So I think it's, um, there's that other side of, of the, of this, this experience for pretty much everyone that goes through, um, a diet or, you know, you know, any kind of, um, significant uh, weight loss endeavor that, that, that comes with it. And I think that no one's going to be posting that right. Um, mm-hmm. out there openly for people to see. Um, and oftentimes I hear people share that they don't show the, you know, others what's really going on. Like, like they're, they're, a lot of their time is spent maintaining this perfect facade and, and keeping, you know, even though it's not real, I think that there's a, just this kind of 
um, maybe a perception or belief that as long as everyone else thinks everything's okay, that it, it, it will be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's a very lonely experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of isolating, um, a lot of alone time to fit this all in and to not feel the guilt of not doing it. Um, mm-hmm. the things, you know, a lot, it would seem, you know, whatever people are putting out there, it seems like they have this great life and everything is fantastic, but a lot of loneliness, like you said. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so if somebody maybe is listening and they're saying, okay, I can relate to everything you're saying about the dark side. Like I, I feel guilty when I don't exercise. Like I spend a lot of my day trying to fit it in. Like you know, just all the things you kind of mentioned. How, if somebody were to come see you, like, how would you start working with them to start shifting their relationship with exercise and movement so that when those awful feelings of guilt or fear of not working out or, you know, keeping up this pace with their exercise regimen, like, how would you start working with them so that it starts to shift? Yeah, that's a good question. So initially, we, you know, we want to spend a lot of time unpacking the the issue and really understanding, you know, its origin. You know, I'd want to get some help someone explore that, like their history with movement, with exercise. You know, um, the thoughts that come up around it. Um, you know, I really want to understand like what rest feels like for them, like what they what their um, perception of rest. Uh, is and what their perception of movement is. So I like to actually ask people what what their definition of exercise is and what their definition definition of movement is. If there's a difference there, um, and in really getting into um, what it's like to to take a day off, um, what um, talking a lot about like what they enjoy about the exercise, what it's offering them, like what it's giving them and what feels like it's take what, how it's taking away from, um, their life. We get into, we do a lot of values work initially where we're really under getting familiar with what this individual's values are and how their uh, relationship to exercises either are helping them align more with those values or moving them more out of alignment with their values. And, and that's kind of setting the, the stage for, any future work we do, we're always going to come back to that and like, you know, remember that we're working towards creating more meaningful life and um, putting exercise in its place in their life so that it's, it's, it's helping them, right. And it's helping and we're keep maintaining those ways that might feel like it's helping them, but not, but hopefully um, uh, removing or limiting the ways it's, it's not helping and providing alternative coping strategies and, and ways to help regulate the nervous system. It's a big part of um, the work of the, of the iMove program and that we do in, in the group setting is to help find alternative ways to regulate the nervous system. Because it's oftentimes the case that someone um, feels strong impulses to move when they are sympathetically activated, you know. Yeah, so you mentioned the iMove program. So for people listening, like, can you describe a little bit about how you came up with the iMove program and more about what it is because it's, it's yeah, a great program. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it actually, you know, the idea came out of, um, honestly, I was, I was going through yoga teacher training and I was in Shavasana and I just was really feeling grateful about where I was in relationship to movement and my body and just 
had a moment to re- reflect on how I got there and realized like there was this, all this wisdom I hadn't really been sharing with clients and was feeling like a little bit fr- like, like challenged with like, how do I, how do I present this? How do I give it to people? And so then it's, I started really working through coming up with ideas and thoughts and, and writing and putting the program together. Um, and it really, so basically it is, it's, it's kind of broken down into three sections where we, we spend time exploring uh, the issue and the relationship with exercise and, uh, you know, getting, getting familiar with values. And so once we've completed, you know, or we've kind of started, explored the, the, the relationship with exercise, we move into a combination of education and experiential work. So, um, I'm doing a lot of education on the nervous system, on mindfulness and the benefits of it, helping people get to know their sensory system and, um, how all these things might play into, you know, their use of exercise and what exercise they're, they're gravitating towards. Um, we do a lot of experiential work around, uh, going into the body. So we'll do some breathing exercises. We'll do meditation. We'll try different kinds of group activities where we're incorporating, um, elements of poly theory. So talking a lot about co-regulation versus self-regulation and and bringing in some sensory activities, just giving them different, um, experiences with, um, alternate coping strategies and, 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 and things they can bring in to help soothe their systems at times when maybe they feel driven towards exercise, um, and, and giving them a different experience with movement, uh, and helping them really slow down, which a number of them describe having a hard time doing, right. Just kind of giving them ex- the, the experience of slowing down or the experience of being at rest, um, and really being at rest and, and, and being in that experience, which in itself is a challenge, but we, and we spend a lot of time processing it. So um, the, the group itself becomes a container in this holding space for anything that comes up and um, we create a lot of safety and it becomes um, really a nice uh, resource and community for, for individuals that are healing from compulsive exercise. And it does extend beyond compulsive exercise. It goes into other eating disorder behaviors too, in the sense that it, when I've surveyed participants, they, they indicate that there's a substantial improvement in all eating disorder behaviors. It's not just the the exercise. Um, I will say the the exception to that rule is um, one person in particular that I have in the group now who's going through EMDR and doing a lot of heavy trauma work and and her symptoms have kind of stayed around the same. Um, Exercise has improved a little bit, but she, you know, I think we, but we've kind of written, but she's expressed that this group has been really valuable in supporting her and providing an all, you know, an additional support while she, she does that trauma work. But that's been the only exception, I think, to the, to the rule is, um, but most of the other individuals are really seeing a, a transition in their relationship to movement and, and one that's very welcome. In fact, they often find that they want to covet it and protect it. And, you know, in, in, it feels like a very, um, beneficial part of their self-care regimen. Yeah. Okay. That, and I find that fascinating, you know, like, um, so I now I'm doing, uh, outpatient work and I constantly am getting the question, you know, I have people who come in and, have, you know, they're exercising hours a day. And so even for me, the question is, even if they come out from a higher level of care, 
the question's always, well, how much exercise should I be doing now? And even when they're getting discharged, there's not really an answer. <laughs> Right. Right. Well, I will say there's a great resource and I can't take credit for this one, but it's amazing. I reference it all the time. It's the safe exercise at every stage. And it was developed by some Australian therapists. Um, it's an amazing resource and it has a whole grid that can guide you around where someone uh, should, you know, should be, or could safely be exercising given different um, biometrics. So where their, you know, their blood pressure, their heart rate are, if they're, you know, where their behaviors are, where they are in terms of their, um, you know, renourishment, those types of things. So there's, it's actually a really helpful guide. And I think I've used it a number of times with clients just to show them, like, there's actually some, some science behind this. And this is, this is why we recommend this level of exercise at this point in your recovery. And where would you like to be? And how do we move you forward and simultaneously work on, um, kind of forming a different kind of relationship with exercise than maybe you had prior to going into eating disorder treatment, because I think that's the thing. Um, if we're not, we're not really addressing it in eating disorder treatment, like higher level of care for the most part, I think some programs are, are do, do a nice job or are starting to, but what happens is because we're not, we're spending so much time on the food, right. And, and kind of getting weight restored, if that needs to happen, that, um, because the relationship with exercise hasn't really been addressed. It's like, it's kind of this outlier and it's kind of like, now, now what do I do with it? You know, and a lot of people leave treatment with a lot of, a lot of, oftentimes a lot of fear about incorporating exercise. Again, I think there's a fear that they're going to go back to where they were, but they want, they may want to incorporate it and they just don't know how to do it. So this is gives, this provides a nice um, uh, roadmap for how to integrate exercise in a way that that's, that's, much different and oriented from the body and, and listening in, 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 in collaboration with the body, not something that's happening to the body. Yeah. Cause I think it, it's almost like, I feel like we're kind of playing past the potato. It's like, you know, clinicians maybe go, well, medical doctors need to address like how much you can do and medical doctors kind of don't really know the guidelines. So it's almost like, who determines it? Because I know it's like me going, well, I don't know. I don't want to answer if you're not medically stable enough. So maybe I'll say your medical team, you know, needs to say how much exercise you right. can do. Cause I don't mm -hmm. want that really on me. You know, I, they're the ones monitoring somebody's, you know, physiology and physical mm -hmm. well-being, Right. So yeah. that's, that's scary. But then like, sometimes I feel like the medical doctors are kind of saying, well, you're the clinician. Is this an eating disorder, like treatment thing that maybe you should know. And so I think there's a lot of kind of like, not, there's not a lot of discussion or um, knowledge, I guess, about like, who's really monitoring the exercise and saying like, what's appropriate, what's not. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, but yeah, I do feel like that's one of the um, the gaps, right? I think that's one of the issues that why, and one of the reasons we're not addressing it more is because who, you know, there's this um, this uncertainty about whose role or whose whose domain it falls into. And I 100% believe agree that the doctor needs to establish like the, the level of safety around exercise at different points in time. So it may be that the doctor says, no, we're not in a place where exercise is possible right now for X, Y, and Z. And, and I would absolutely support that. But when we're talking about 
um, when someone's able to start incorporating exercise again, or they want to, it's, that's when I think they need help navigating it. Right. And that, that's where um, my hope is this program comes in and it, it provides clinicians and clients with a, a, a model they can use to help explore that relationship with movement mm-hmm. and start to help the person shift from, again, that external locus of control to internal, the way we want to do with, with eating. Like we talk about intuitive eating and moving into sensing the body's cues and this interceptive awareness that we want to develop. It's the same thing around movement. Like, all right, you're, you're having this urge to move. Where's that coming from? Um, let's like explore that a little bit. Like what kind of movement are you wanting? What are you looking to accomplish with the movement? And, and kind of then, and then observing what happens. Okay. You wanted this, you went for a run. How did you feel after? Um, so helping people reflect on like what they're looking for from the movement and what it's actually providing them. Um, and also giving them alternatives when they really don't want to be moving. Like, like, you know, they may feel like the only way they can regulate their system is to exercise, but the program gives them alternative options so that, you know, when exercise either isn't accessible um, or they're too, you know, they, they're preferring, they, they prefer to try something different. They have those, those things available to them. How much does the, um, do you address, like, I guess the ed thoughts related to exercise, like, oh, if I don't exercise, I don't earn my food or I only get to eat if I exercise X amount or you know, I can only start my day once I exercise this amount or, you know, these kind of mm-hmm. rules related to exercise. So you were talking about when people have a lot of these ED thoughts um, and rules around exercise and what um, what I might suggest. And I think that is where, I mean, some old school, like CBT comes in, right. Kind of working on the thoughts in any way we would work on other thoughts relating to behaviors, um, and and kind of really challenging, like those rules and the beliefs around exercise. And a lot of it does quite honestly come from you know, information picked up in our culture and the media and from friends and family, et cetera. So I do like to explore like, where are you getting these messages and um, like what impact are those messages having on you and really kind of talking about the emotional impact and, and helping them see that it is a choice, you know, whether, you know, how, like what there, there's a choice in their relationship with, with, with movement. And one of the things I think has been really helpful for a number of people in the, in the program is they get it on more of a visceral level, like on some, on some level before they believe that, oh yeah, I have a choice whether or not to exercise, but I'm going to exercise because it makes me feel better. It like helps me stop thinking about it. So I can just get it, get it out of the way and move on. And um, what they realize is like, kind of just by slowing down and having a different experience with movement, getting into their body and, you know, in building up a window of tolerance for that, they actually really feel on a visceral level, like, oh no, I, it is really my choice. I don't have to move in a compulsive pattern in order to get myself to baseline or to, um, you know, whatever, you know, fill in the gap there to, to, to get rid of the, these, these racing thoughts, obsessive thoughts about needing to move or needing to do these things. It's, it's finding, and recognizing that sometimes when those thoughts are racing and, and more active that, that, that like any, like things around food, it's, it, there's something else going on. Right. And if you can drop down into the body, a lot of times there's, there's, there's a deeper wisdom that you can access there. Um, some people have even identified that by not exercising compulsively, they've been able to make for, make a lot more progress emotionally in their recovery because they're able to, and to feel a sense of power mm-hmm. in being able to hold, 
an emotional experience and work through it. Whereas if you're, you know, um, if you're moving really fast, you're kind of, you know, moving away from the problem, so to speak, and um, not necessarily sitting with it and letting it, uh, letting it evolve in, in, in a more natural way. So you've been doing the iMove uh, program for how long now? In um, just under two years. So I really started, the, I started the pilot and it was, it was so successful. And I started like simultaneously kind of writing about it, just kind of writing it down. And then I wrote the book and now um, like the, the first group of participants, I still have two people in this ongoing group. So they've continued for like, we do like, we do three months um, uh, segments and they've just continued and we were taking a break for the first time. And, um, they've actually established like a peer support, um, listserv where they're staying connected over the, over the summer and reading books and, you know, and we created some, some guidelines for that to create some safety so that it was, um, being used for therapeutic purposes and not, this personal and uh, it's been just great to see the connections that they've formed and um I'm going to try doing it virtually this fall um that'll be it'll be interesting to see if it translates the same way I've done the the, the clinic the clinician training I've done virtually and that works really well but I'm curious to see if I can um effectively lead a a client-based group virtually in this, because a lot of it does depend on this like co-regulation and like our, I feel like in, in, in space together, there's, there's another layer of connection that we have. That's fascinating. So it, so two questions. One, if there's somebody out there who's saying, oh, this sounds great. I'd love to get involved with this. Like how long would like say from like, if they started, working with you like how long is it typically till you've seen progress in people going through the program I mean we I see we I see progress like after the three months like when I survey people there's always some progress at that point I I will say at the year point um, I'm thinking of a couple people in particular that were with me for a full year and they will, will honestly say their relationship with exercise is completely different than when they started. Yeah. So it's, I think that's a very individual thing. How long, right. I think it probably depends a lot on how long you've been engaging in the patterns, how ready you are to make change, how much work you've done prior. So there's a lot of variables in place. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say for some individuals, if, if, if groups in general have been hard in the past or haven't been, um, have been really challenging and they shut down, it can be, it, it can be better to do the work individually. Um, because I think going both going into the body and being in a group, if a group doesn't feel supportive to you for some reason, or, or, um, sets your system up for, uh, you know, more of, um, defense mode, then it's probably going to be a hard space to do this work. But, for folks that really um, value group and get a lot out of group and and have struggled to to be to go into their body and to to build like have any level of tolerance for being, you know, in their in, embodied at all, this is a really great, um, it, it's a great model. And for people, I think one of the reasons that people do compulsively exercise, but I know because I've seen it in the group, is to really escape the body and get out of the body and 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 you know. Uh, avoid and and this is giving them an alternative way of of regulating but being present and kind of being with the body 
So, you know, on the other side, so if clinicians are listening and they're saying, oh, how do I get trained in this to use it with my own um, patients? Like, how does that work? How do you train people? Yeah. So I've done two pilot trainings for this and they run really well. And um, there'll be another training coming up in the fall. You can find all this information at imovemethod.com. And that's where um, you'll find information about the training, the book, um, resources. Uh, it's in development now. I don't know when this podcast will come out. So at that point, it hopefully will be ready to go. But sometime um, in, the, in the very near future, all the details about the about the training will be up there and there's going to be a couple there's one will be self-led and then the other one will be more um, like a full certification. So if you want to learn about the model and apply it to your own individual work, but you're not necessarily interested in leading iMove groups, that the, op- the best option would be the certification because that's a, a more of a 12-week uh, program with some live calls and a lot of additional resources with lesson plans and you know group format and all that. Fantastic. So, you know, you gave the information for the website. If people do want to learn more about you, find you, how can they do that? So you can reach me if you have questions, or I also have offered to give people some, um, you know, the, the questions that I ask and an activity to dive deeper and explore the relationship with exercise. So I'm happy to offer that. And you can just reach out to me at amy, A-M-Y, at metrowestnutrition.com. And I'm happy to um, provide that and answer any questions. Um, yeah. Very nice and generous of you. Thank you for that. And I'm sure people will be <laughs> taking you up on that. So, and if you know, you guys didn't get that information, it'll all be in the show notes as well. So um any last words before we end, Amy? Really appreciate your time. So you've given a lot of fantastic information, but I don't know if there's any last words before we end. No, I just, uh, um, I think, you know, there. I encourage people to, you know, get familiar with ways to explore exercise with clients. And, and for those of you who are people struggling with compulsive exercise, just know that there is a way to, to shift this and, you know, have a little more freedom around uh, this area of your life. So, um, you know, there are definitely different options for different people in terms of what um, your readiness is and what, um, you know, what your resources are, you know, just in the book or, um, I also encourage anyone that's interested in potentially participating in uh, the virtual iMove group to, to reach out to me as well. Great. Well, thank you again so much. Um, guys, head over to her website. And like I said, all the information is on my website. So um, make sure thank you, know. Christina. This has been great. Um, I've enjoyed talking with you. And I, yeah, I look forward to connecting in the future. Thank you. I actually, I might head over to your website too. So <laughs> thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. You too. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is given with the understanding that neither the host, the publisher, or the guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find one.